Hello and welcome to David's Politics Show. On today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome a very special guest, Professor John Mueller. Professor Mueller is Woody Hayes Senior Research Scientist at the Merchant Center for International Security Studies, as well as an adjunct professor of political science at Ohio State University. He's also a Cato Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute in Washington, DC. His most recent book, out now with Cambridge University Press, is titled The Stupidity of War, American Foreign Policy and the Case for Complacency. It surveys the history of American foreign and military policy since 1945 and concludes that threats to American security have been routinely inflated, but far too much has been spent on the military, and that there is a lot to be said for the traditionally maligned techniques of complacency and appeasement in dealing with international problems. He has published widely on the subject of terrorism, warning about the costly overreactions that inflated fears about it can lead to. Among his books on the topic are Terror, Security, and Money, Balancing the Risks, Benefits, and Costs of Homeland Security, published in 2011, and Chasing Ghosts, The Policing of Terrorism, published in 2016. In 2010, he published a book on nuclear proliferation titled Atomic Obsession, Nuclear Alarmism from Hiroshima to Al-Qaeda. But for our conversation today, perhaps his most relevant book is the one he published all the way back in 1989, Retreat from Doomsday, The Obsolescence of Major War, which dealt with changing attitudes towards war, in particular the disappearance of the view that war was somehow a noble and, and sensible endeavor. The book we will talk about today picks up some of those themes and offers a refreshingly contrarian view, I think it's fair to say on some of the most pressing issues in international affairs at the moment. So I'm delighted to be able to talk with him about these and other matters in today's episode. Professor Mueller, thank you very much and welcome. Thank you, David. Great to be here. So I thought I'd begin um, just by asking you to kind of give, give our listeners a brief synopsis of uh, what this book is about. What, uh, what is the stupidity of war? Well, it's a realization, I guess you could say, that, that came upon a lot of people after World War I. Uh, in many respects, the book is a biography of the idea that war is really very stupid. Now, there have been stupid wars going back forever. Uh, one of the stupidest, surely, was uh, the war between the Greeks and the, and the Trojans, which was fought 10 years over an errant wife, uh, um, Helen, and it ended up with the complete de demolishing of the city of Troy including the rape of the women or put them, put them into sex slavery uh, or the, and, the, and the killing of the men. Um, so there's been, and that was all over, you know, this one errant wife. And it, a lot of wars like that, that, that you could say the same thing about it. But it wasn't until after World War I that that idea that war, we should not do this war, we should not do this stuff, this international war stuff anymore. Because uh, it's really very stupid, as well as destructive, immoral, and a whole bunch of other things. Um, and the changes basically have been seen quantitatively, effectively. Before before World War One, if you look at the literature in the United States and particularly in Europe, it's extremely easy to find people who talk about war being glorious, beautiful, redemptive, progressive, uh, uh, sublime, and so forth. On and on and on, and they talk. About Peace is being decadent and uh, frivolous and uh, tied up with materialism and filled with what one commentator called bovine content. So I, when I looked at that literature, I was really impressed how easy it was. You just hit page through sort of, you know, uh, journals comparable to Foreign Affairs or Hudson Review. You'd find some article popping up called, for example, God's Purpose by War, written by a theologian, explaining how war was really wonderful because God ordained it. After World War I, it's virtually impossible to find that happening. I'd uh, looked pretty hard. I may have found one or two places where it lingered on, and that's about it. Instead, the idea then was, let's not do that anymore. Uh, and that idea has basically grown. World War II, which I'm glad to talk about, uh, certainly reinforced that idea. And after World War II, uh, the countries of the world were basically determined to try to keep international war from happening. And to a substantial ex extent, that has been successful. Uh, Europe, which was once the most warlike con continent in the world, has stayed out of international war pretty much successfully for 70 years. 
75 years, actually, the longest period of time uh, since Europe as a concept was invented about 2,500 years ago. Other countries in the developed world have also joined that. Uh, there have been other international wars, like between the uh, Indians and the Pakistanis, between Israelis and the, and, uh, the Arab states. Uh, but those have basically died out as well. So that in the last 30 years, there have there have only been three international wars at all, as conventionally defined. One was the war between Ethiopia and Eritrea at the end of the 20th century. And the other two were started by the United States after 9-11 uh, to take out Saddam Hussein in Iraq and to take out uh, the Taliban in uh, and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, which then, of course, devolved into long wars of, of uh, insurgency. So what I'm basically arguing is that although ugly behavior hasn't stopped, substantially we're living in a situation of international peace in which countries simply do not use, for the most part, war as a method of dealing with their differences. And I think that's a very significant change. Right. And, and, it, and it's very interesting because in, in the book, you actually make an analogy with dueling which is, of course, something that essentially has 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 disappeared. I mean, it's, it's not something that we see, at least in our in our in our societies. And it's an interesting analogy, also because it, it brings it to that. It brings the argument to kind of a, a cultural a cultural sphere, which I which I'd like to get into um, maybe later on. But but I'd like to drill drill down a little bit into when when you think this this aversion to international war actually started to to take root i mean you, you mentioned just now and you, and you developed this uh at length in the book that obviously world war one played a critical role and in, in fact in the interwar period in the war was actually even at least in one international treaty the, the kellogg Briand pact 1928 was actually was actually criminalized but what would you say to the the, the obvious rejoinder which I, I don't think is particularly convincing but it's, it's at least relatively obvious one which is of course well there was a, there was a second world war. So, how do we how do we explain that? Yeah, they uh, explain it with Adolf Hitler. Uh, the Japanese, by the way, the other war, the Pacific War. The Japanese were not part of this. They still considered in the twenties and so forth to sort of glorify war. So, uh, the war that war was maybe in the cards, um, and they they had not experienced World War One uh, within Europe. Uh, let me just quote. Uh, the, one of the most prominent uh, military historians ever, John Keegan, who said there's only one European who wanted another war, and that was Adolf Hitler. What he's saying, and I've got about 20 historians that essentially say the same thing, um, that uh, with, uh, Hitler was a necessary cause of World War II. In fact, one of the reasons Hitler was successful was he kept saying he was in favor of peace, and people believed him because they couldn't think that anybody seriously could consider trying to get into anything that looked remotely like World War I again. Um, so if Hitler had been run over by a truck, it seems to me World War II wouldn't have happened. Uh, but it also indicates that simply because most people think war is stupid doesn't mean that everybody does, and it can still technically, physically happen. But at any rate, at, at the end of World War II, if, if you take my argument or if you simply say, well, they needed another example to really hammer it in, uh, after World War II, there was a strong effort to uh, get rid of international war. And as I indicated earlier, that's been pretty much successful. That doesn't mean that people don't have conflicts. People still, you know, people used to duel, still disagree on you know, various things, including their honor, but they don't duel anymore. And that for the most part, states do not fight international wars uh, to resolve their differences. Right. And, and, and what, what about the, uh, the argument that's, I think, relatively common in, in international relations that ultimately what really counted after world war ii was the development of of nuclear weapons and the in fact the initial proliferation of nuclear weapons seems to me that in, you're, you're making a slightly different argument which is more on the level of, of ideas and culture is that is that would that be a fair reading yes very much so yeah I, I, my first article is about 1985 arguing that nuclear weapons hadn't made much difference uh, and this book continues it in other writings I've done, but this and the, the book you mentioned earlier, Atomic Obsession, goes into great, quite a bit of detail. But it's very clear, basically, coming out of the archives, the Soviet archives, that the Soviet Union never in a million years wanted to get into another war, whether it was nuclear or not, anything like World War II. 
Um, and uh, so it, there was nothing really to deter. They were in favor of expanding their influence and, uh, and fomenting revolution and things like that. But they uh, were completely averse to going into another international war. I don't think nuclear weapons were very relevant. Let me give you one other example. There have been a large number of border conflicts around the world, international border conflicts. Uh, some of them violent, some of them involving uh, death. For example, there was just one last year between India and, and uh, China. Uh, but a study of that by uh, uh, Dan Altman at Georgia State University uh, indicates that while these conflicts have been there, there have been scores of them in various places, the countries that deal with uh, have, have had these conflicts have been extremely careful about not letting them escalate to major war or real war, international war. So that the, the conflicts, as with the one with, between India and Pakistan, was over an unpopulated and largely ungarrisoned area. Uh, in other words, there's a whole bunch of wars that never happened, and it certainly didn't have to do with nuclear weapons because they didn't want to get into anything that looked like, uh, like, a, like a standard conventional war. They were interested in playing around. They were taking over little bits of territory or, or submerged rocks in various seas and so forth, uh, but not letting it escalate. So I think that's a general temper. And there's still people trying to get around this in the sense that they still have disagreements. And they're willing to use things like small border conflicts, like sending cyber balloons, like intervening in civil wars, uh, like propagandizing and so forth to, to uh, advance their interests as they see them. But they're not willing to use full out international war. And that's a trend which seems to have continued and become um, essentially universal. Right. And, and, and I think one sees one sees that extreme reluctance to risk anything that could that could potentially escalate, for example, in in the in the case you just mentioned of, of India and China last year, because we know that both sides actually came to some kind of tacit agreement or maybe it's, maybe it's even a formal agreement that on the, in that particular area where they both patrol. And this is kind of a godforsaken part of the of, of the Himalayas. Um, they, they, they both agreed that basically their troops would, would show up physically, but wouldn't carry any, any firearms. And in fact, in this, in this most recent fracas, they, they, some people were killed, but, but not with firearms. So it's an interesting case in point of, of two, two, in fact, nuclear states, which are, are very, very careful about how they compete. But, uh, I'd like to come back to the, to the point about the, the causal factors at play here because i think one of the most uh most interesting and i think most refreshing elements of your book is that you you make a very strong defense of the causal nature of of ideas of, of ideological change of cultural change and i'd just like to read a, a very briefly for our listeners passage you quote from a book by uh the great political scientist robert dahl which gets gets at this fundamental point he wrote, uh, this is in 1971 in his book, uh, Polyarchy, quote, because of their concern with rigor and their dissatisfaction with the, in inverted commas, softness of historical description, generalization, and explanation, most social scientists have turned away from the historical movement of ideas. As a result, their own theories, however, again, quote unquote, rigorous they may be, leave out an important explanatory variable and often lead to naive reductionism, and, and, unquote. And I just thought that it was, it was such an interesting quote because it seems to me that captures very much the spirit of a lot of what political science and especially international relations as a discipline has become in, in, in recent decades. Did, did you write the book in a way deliberately to kind of go against that grain? Yes, it, it's, that's been an interest of mine throughout my whole career, the changing, changing attitudes, um, in, in this case, toward war um, or toward dueling or toward, or toward slavery. Uh, it just seems to me the power of ideas is extremely strong, and it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen. For example, slavery had been around forever, and at the end of basically the 19th, 18th century, some people started jumping up and down and said, let's not do slavery anymore. And people looked at him and said, you're crazy. We've been doing slavery forever. It's in the Bible. And every place else, everybody's done slavery. We can't get rid of it. Some people are born to be masters and some are born to be slaves. That's just the way it is. Well, 100 years later, slavery, formal slavery at least, had vanished from the face of the earth, pretty much. Um, and so, uh, and it's not clear to me why that would be the case. 
And nor is it in the case of war. I mean, I already talked about the, you know, in the Greek and Trojan War. Why didn't then after that, some people say, this is really, 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 really stupid. Uh, a couple of playwrights, including Aristophanes, did actually. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, the, those, those uh, wars have continued. Uh, and so it's basically a revelation, basically, in, in, after World War I. Um, the best I can do to figure out why it happened then, after World War I, is that I looked for what's unique about World War I. Was it stupid? Yes. Were there a million other wars who were stupid? Yes. Check out the War of 1812 if you want. Um, was it horribly destructive? Yes. Have there been other destructive wars? Yes. Look at there's a zillion wars in which one country or one side, as like Troy, was totally demolished, 100%. Uh, they couldn't even find where Troy was for 2,000 years. Was it, was it particularly ugly? Uh, well, I hate to enlighten people, but mud, leeches, and dysentery were not invented in 1914. Uh, so they can go through a whole list of things like that. The, the only thing that World War I was really different in was that it was the first time in history, really amazingly, uh, in which there was an organized anti-war movement. It started about uh, 1889, quite not very many years before World War I. And it, was, it started from a novel by an by a, um, a, a Austrian noblewoman, and it went viral. And that's not the phrase they used then, but that's what it used now. And she was really impressed, and she became known as the most famous woman in, in Europe, for example. Um, and she started working, and others did, on, on anti-war movement. The war is a bad idea, um, or a stupid idea. She was joined by some industrialists like uh, Andrew Carnegie or like uh, Alfred Nobel. Uh, and uh, it's sort of, sort of a growing movement, also by economists or people using economic arguments like uh, Norman Angel in Europe. So it was in the air, but it was basically dismissed by the war types, the hawks, the people who loved war, as basically an effeminate, sort of irrelevant movement, a gadfly movement. Uh, so, but it was in the air. People were talking about it. Uh, most of them were dismissing it as being ridiculous. After World War I, uh, after experience an example of, not that they should have needed one, of how horrible war was, uh, people were willing to uh, pay attention to it. And they went back, the peace movement was basically dominant. And the Treaty of Versailles and the forming of the Allied Good Nations and the Pellegrin Pact that you mentioned, efforts to try to get rid of international war uh, were, were paramount. The whole League of Nations was, what we'll do is divide up the whole country, whole world into a set of chunks. And then uh, you uh, have to stick within those chunks. You can't create wars of invasion against other countries. And for the most part, it's worked, except for these minor border conflicts that I mentioned early, earlier. So it's, uh, I think it's extremely important, a huge number of political scientists and historians even, uh, have not noticed this, have not talked about this, and it's and it's something that I think is is very central. Other ideas like why did democracy happen when it happened? I mean, people have known about democracy for thousands of years. The Greeks had democracy, but it didn't really come into motion until the until the 19th century, basically. Uh, the United States tried it out. It was known as the American experiment. Increasingly, people said, "Hey, that maybe worked pretty well." And even when the United States uh, slobbered itself into the disastrous civil war, um, uh, in other words, in the ma massive failure of democracy of everything, uh, nevertheless, it, it, it continued to go, grow even after. And why then? I don't know. Um, let, me, let, me, let me just give you another example, which is not from politics. Uh, when Shakespeare was doing his plays, there was the belief that um, if there was a play going around, a way to solve the problem or else deal with it was to close the theater. Uh, it was not a dead loss uh, because that's when Shakespeare wrote his sonnets. But at any rate, what they what that clearly was was somehow, if you, there's disease or contagious by little things you can't see, people breathe them in and out or something, or they, it comes off their body and other people then collect it. So that was obviously the theory behind closing the theaters: don't let people congregate and we'll stop this disease. Okay, now one thing would be to say, okay, if that's true of the air, why isn't it also true of water? Why, why is water not, well, you can have little invisible things in water that kill people. But it took 300 years for that logical extension to be made. Uh, they were smart enough to, and lucky enough, I suppose, to see 
say that airborne diseases were were, were possible in sixteen early sixteen hundreds, but they but it took three hundred years to expand that to water. Um, so it uh, and it's really hard to see why. Right. Yeah. That, that's that's a very that's a very interesting example of the way in which, in certain historical periods, perhaps certain ideas don't, for whatever constellation of reasons, don't don't mature or don't reach a kind of a, a critical level. Now, I, what you say about World War I is interesting because, of course, one of the traditional explanations of the cultural change that was caused by World War I had to do in part with the technology itself, the actual material substance of it, how people were killed, the enormous numbers, the fact that the individual initiative was certainly um, much reduced relative to previous age of conflict. And you, and you see this, of course, in the way in which the war was fought in, in, the, in, the, in the early stages in 1914, you still had, uh, for example, French troops going into battle with bright red trousers. And there was this kind of belief in, in, the, in the offensive that if only troops, uh, you know, really, really believed that they, could, that they could win and were courageous enough, they would be able to, to sweep uh, the enemy from the battlefield. And of course, modern artillery pretty much pretty much got rid of that. So it, it sounds as though you, you don't find that a, a convincing explanation of, of why it is that we see this sudden change after World War I in the way in which war is viewed in society in general. Yeah, I just said basically, you know, I already talked about the Trojans. Every single man was killed, basically. Every single woman was killed after being raped if she wasn't sold into sex slavery. I mean, you can't get more than 100%. Uh, in, in the Bible, there was all kinds of wars in which God, under God's direct order, uh, the uh, Israelites annihilated complete areas like Jericho. What happened after the walls of Jericho fell down? Answer: They killed every single person except for one prostitute and her uh, and her family because she had harbored Israelite spies. Maybe performed other services. We're not sure about that. Uh, the Bible is silent. Uh, <laughs> basically, wars of annihilation. Uh, we were very common. The, the Thirty Years' War, and, the, and, and people believed they were even worse. For example, the Thirty Years' War in, in Europe, uh, the, the, it was understood and believed for centuries that Germany lost 80% of its population in the, 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 that's in those series of wars. Turns out that was wrong, but people believed it. Uh, if they, there's nothing remotely like 80% in World War I. World War I, in some respects, was fairly civilized. I mean, cities were not really bombarded all that much. There were no wars in cities, no bombing of cities. Um, and the uh, uh, medical uh, training was becoming comparatively uh, productive. Uh, we're getting into, into the age of modern medicine. The, the percentage of, of uh, people who died in the battle zones, first place, they're mostly all young men, which means that it must have been a just war, um, not, not women and children and old people and stuff like that. Um, and uh, the numbers compared to the total population were not uh, uh, significantly outsized compared to a huge number of wars be before. Um, and it's not clear to me, you know, if, I, if I'm going to be killed in a war, it's not particularly clear to me that being killed by a bullet or an artillery shell is worse than being stabbed to death. Um, and, uh, and, you know, in fact, in the, in the, in the Rwandan genocide, when the genocidaires were going through, some people were paying the genocidaires to kill them with bullets rather than with machetes. Um, so the idea that, uh, that uh, uh, bullets and shrapnel uh, are much worse than the old-fashioned thing of hacking people to death or sending arrows through them is really very questionable. So uh, let's maybe talk a little bit about uh, some of the other concepts which are, are prevalent in, in political science and, and in, in international relations, which, which you also criticize in this book. For example, the, the kind of Huntingtonian talk of, of civilizations, kind of clash of civilizations, you, you're very skeptical about that. But also this, all this talk of hegemony, the idea that the United States is, is hegemonic either on its continent or globally. And the third one I noticed is the concept of anarchy. In international relations, international relations theory, of course, the idea that simply there is basically no world policeman, so it's it's just every man, every man for for himself, as it were. Um, maybe talk a little bit about why, first of all, what you find unpersuasive about these concepts, 
and, and maybe also why, what explains their, their staying power? Why do you think they have become so much part of the, of the discourse of these disciplines? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure. I mean, Huntington's, I, I did a book in 2004 called The Remnants of War, which I took into uh, even more than in this book, into Huntington's idea of the clash of civilizations. What he saw was the Bosnian war going on, and you have different civilizations confronting each other, sort of a Christian Western civilization and a Christian Eastern civilization, as well as Muslims. Uh, and he thought these were ancient ethnic hatreds that just sort of sprung out uh, at various places. Other people joined him in that. Um, but uh, it's, And he said, this is going to go on forever. And in fact, since the war in Bosnia ended in 1995, as far as I can see, there's not been a single case of ethnic war in that area, or ethnic violence. I mean, including people getting into a fight in a pub and killing one another. Um, so it's basically nonsense, it seems to me. It's not ancient. Ethnic haters had a lot to do with other things, and particularly in empowering thugs. Uh, in terms of hegemony, I've never been able to deal with that. It, it sounds like a ridiculous idea. Uh, the United States is supposedly the hegemon in the Western Hemisphere. And hegemon, the word, it sort of implies you know, dominance. In fact, that word is used almost interchangeably with it. Well, if the United States dominates the Western Hemisphere, We've got this little island called Cuba, not very far away, and it's been thumbing its nose at the United States for like 60 years. Um, do you think that something's wrong there? We've got Venezuela doing it now as well. So if the United States is a hege hegemon in the Western Hemisphere, why can't it do anything? Um, and, and the concern is that, that being a hegemon makes a difference. And the big fear among uh, a lot of political scientists now uh, is that uh, China will become a hegemon in East Asia. I think China will become a hegemon in East Asia the same way the United States is a hegemon in the Western Hemisphere. Namely, no one is worried about being invaded by the United States, including Cuba and Venezuela. Uh, but everybody is worried that the United States might agree, might say, I'm not going to buy your bananas anymore or your, or your coffee anymore or your cocaine anymore, perhaps, um, uh, or your beer anymore. Uh, and I think China is going to become a hegemon in that sense. It's going to be the biggest market in the world. Uh, and you don't want to alienate it necessarily uh, because they might stop buying your stuff. Uh, and if that's hege hegemony, I think that's something we can very much live with. In terms of the concept of anarchy, the word anarchy, of course, has this connotation, um, though it's not necessarily technically true, that of sort of chaos and, and un lack of control. Well, I think we are basically in, in a condition of anarchy right now, international anarchy. There is no world government, as you pointed out. The United Nations never grew into one, as everybody thought might eventually happen. But countries have basically given up dealing, uh, fighting each other in international wars. Well, if that's the case, anarchy could be a pretty good thing. Because you don't have to worry about the big problem of anarchy, namely of uh, wars being fought between nations. So you don't have to worry about a lot of things, trade disputes and stuff like that, uh, but, um, or, or little tiny concerns over borderlands um, or lobbing cyber balloons or whatever. But that's pretty tolerable. Um, but for the most part, then, what happens is countries have to try to get along. They negotiate. They come up with the law of the sea. Uh, they come up with conventions. Some of them work. Some of them don't. Uh, and it seems to me anarchy could be a desirable condition under those circumstances. Yes, that's that's uh, that's certainly a very a very interesting thesis, and it seems to be going against the grain of, of a lot of the the policy talk certainly coming out out of Washington uh, about China. Uh, now, in, in the book, in the book, you in several moments you you make the point that for for a number of reasons that I'd like to get into now, it's been difficult for politicians, especially in the West, but not but not only to in a way, talk sense to, to their public and, and not indulge in the temptation to, as you put it, overinflate fears, whether it be about terrorism or about threats like, uh, threats like China. And you mentioned, for example, in the Cold War, in the, in the, in the early part of the Cold War, uh, where you know, everybody was freaking out about the nuclear, the nuclear balance and, and later the missile gap and all of that, that Eisenhower was actually very, very skeptical of the idea that the Soviet Union had offensive 
intentions. Could you maybe talk a little bit a little bit about about that and and why you think why you think it's it's so difficult for our societies to to remain reasonable about these threats? Well, it's a it's a tricky question. I must say, it's really hard. Uh, the, uh, uh, the Eisenhower example is a really good one, um, and uh, there's a discussion in the book about Eisenhower is is, is basically seeing that World War III was not likely in the cards. Um, it, 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 a traumatic event for him. Uh, he had, of course, been the general in World War II. Uh, and at the end of the war in Europe, he flew to uh, Moscow to talk to Stalin, uh, you know, and try to figure out what the peace is going to look like and so forth. And then on the way back, and he writes about this in his memoir, uh, he, either either no clouds, they flew low enough, but he could all the way back from Moscow to wherever he was going, presumably Berlin, he could look down and he said, everything is destroyed all the way, thousands of miles. Everything is destroyed below me. And he concluded from that, they're not going to want to do that again. Um, and the Russians, of course, have, and the Soviets have said that repeatedly. You know, Khrushchev saying, you know, my son was killed in that stupid damn war. I don't want to do that again. And um, as I, it, uh, uh, evidence coming out of the Soviet archives after the fall of the Soviet Union indicates that they never had any plans about attacking in the West. Um, and so uh, even, a, even a, a relatively limited attack within Western Europe, perhaps, much less an attack against the United States. There, in other words, there was nothing to deter. Um, but Eisenhower, what I looked at with Eisenhower is why didn't he say that in public? Uh, and there's a couple of people who looked at it, George, George Bundy being one of them, Robert uh, uh, Bowie, another. Um, and it's really hard to see because basically he said this repeatedly in in conferences, and we get the best evidence is actually from the notes by his press secretary of confer of conferences, and they find it in marginalia that he wrote in other people. You know, he read a speech and he wrote, "I've been trying saying this for years," and so forth. He wrote in the margin, but he never said it publicly. And going to your, directly to your question, I thought he couldn't. I think he thought he couldn't sell it. Instead of saying they're not going to start war, he found that that was politically unacceptable. So after leaving, or as he was leaving office, he gave a speech about the military-industrial complex. And he said, basically, we're spending too much money on the military, and it's because of these devious guys in the military-industrial complex who is the uh, politics around to their, their, uh, their, uh, their, their needs and desires. He never said that uh, the reason they were successful was not because they were diabolical uh, uh, lobbyists, but because their premise, namely the Soviets are going to invade in any minute, was being bought by the American people. So it's not possible to go against that. Um, and he didn't. Another case in point, you mentioned terrorism, is Obama uh, basically was, it turns out, <laughs> saying things I've been saying for 20 years now. Um, and he was at one point, uh, he wanted to go public with that. He wanted to say that. He did say terrorism does not present an existential threat to the United States. And that was a big breakthrough. Boy, wow. The little terrorists hiding out in Pakistan are not going to destroy the United States. Uh, So he did say that, uh, but he was unwilling to go against, uh, to go further, to say what I just said, uh, your chance of being killed is microscopic. We shouldn't be worried about it that much. Uh, His staff said, you can't do that because the American people are terrified of terrorism correctly. They were right about that. Uh, and so you can't do it. Um, so I don't think it's all that much manipulative. In fact, I got a paper coming out about this in Cato in, the, in a month or so. Uh, but basically, the it's a sort of bottom up. Some people are afraid of things. They're afraid of communism during the Cold War. Uh, they're afraid of domestic communists during the Cold War. They're afraid of um, uh, of uh, the terrorism after nine, particularly after nine eleven. And it, and uh, you politically, you just couldn't change things, and people didn't even try. Um, you know, in my books, in those with Mark Stewart, we constantly said, well, there's such a thing as acceptable risk. By any normal standards, the, uh, the risk of terrorism is acceptable. Five people or six people get killed every year since 9-11 in the United States. That's too bad, but that's not a big number. Um, and, uh, but no one was, no, it's very hard to feed people even mentioning the concept of acceptable risk, even though it's required by international, by uh, executive orders, going back to at least to Ronald Reagan. If you're going to have a program, you have to explain what the costs are. 
and whether it's cost effective, and but they haven't done it. So I'm sorry, I have no real good answer to your question. I, it just it's just out there. See, not not all threats get exaggerated. For example, a lot of people trying to sell the threat of genetically modified food. It's not doing well. Uh, global warming is probably not selling nearly as well mm-hmm. proponents would think. So it's not that every threat that people start hyping out, hyping uh, uh, works, but some of them do, and some of them, and once they're embedded, it's very hard to get rid of them. Right, and, and it's it's interesting because in the book you also mentioned a couple of examples. Uh, in fact, two of them arguably, or maybe even all three, were terrorist attacks, which in a way didn't didn't sort of catch on. The, the, there was the, the the bombing of the U.S. barracks in Lebanon in, in 1983, the Lockerbie bombing, which arguably was very much was very much a state sponsored act of terrorism, and, and then of course the anthrax the anthrax attacks after 9/11. And in all, in all three cases, the, the U.S., both at the level of the, the government and, and also on society more generally, did not freak out in, in the way that seems to have happened after, after 9-11. So it's interesting that sometimes this, this mechanism didn't seem to, to latch on. But what, what I found so fascinating about this, this whole point is that, of course, you might argue, well, well it's you know, one of the reasons why this happens and politicians are reluctant to you know say things as as they really are is because as you mentioned there is also pressure from below to in a way exaggerate these threats but in in the book you mentioned of course that during the cold war the soviets themselves exaggerated uh, had had exaggerated fears about what nato would do i mean Paul, one of the reasons why khrushchev or perhaps the primary reason why khrushchev put the missiles in cuba is cuz he was he was actually, I guess, seriously concerned that uh, there would be an, a second invasion after the, the Bay of Pig fiasco, which, of course, was completely, completely off the cards. And the, you argue also that the strategic imbalance in nuclear weapons was, in any case, irrelevant. So it seems to have happened also on, on their side. Yes, there is no question. Um, they, and the Chinese have exaggerated the threat of terrorism in Xinjiang, for example. Uh, and the Soviets have exaggerated the threat of it uh, to, in, in uh, Chechnya and in other places. Uh, yes, it's it's a, it's a, both ways. And the basic fear is, and was during the Cold War, is that both sides can be so hyped up about fears that don't exist that they start to take on a life of their own. And uh, in order to prevent them from going further, they they start a war. I think that's pretty unlikely. It obviously didn't happen during the Cold War. Uh, but it continues to be the case, uh, you know, for example, with respect to China, uh, both sides seem to be uh, in a situation in which they're worried about the other one dominating, even though n- nobody seems to want to go to a war over the issue. There may be trade issues that they fight over, uh, but uh, not not a, a direct war, um, a military in, in, uh, engagement. And uh, so uh, that's one of the ways wars could probably still start. Uh, generally, though, uh, countries have been pretty good, as I've indicated, uh, at keeping war from the equation. For example, in the case of China, it's had a lot of border conflicts. With It's got a lot of neighbors. There are dozens and dozens of border issues. And over the years, it settled them pretty well, uh, and, t- and sometimes giving up disputed territory that they thought was theirs, try to settle them. Uh, so they, they've got a, actually quite a good record on that. Uh, still, there's these problems, some with Nepal in particular, and very in particular with India on border uh, disagreements. So maybe as as we as we move towards the end of our discussion, let's let's maybe transition to the present. And could you say a few words about how how would you tackle what seems to be the kind of the ge- the geopolitical struggle du jour at the moment, which is, of course, the, the, the China-U.S. tension. Some people are talking again about a kind of new Cold War, whatever whatever exactly that is supposed to mean. It's never entirely clear to me in what sense, first of all, in what sense it's a war, in what sense it's cold, in what sense it's it's both those things put together. But leaving that aside, you, you mentioned this in the book. That's why I want to bring this to the attention of, of the listeners. How would you deal with the whole Taiwan issue? To what extent is that a real problem? Should the U.S. adopt one policy or, or another? How, how should we think about that? Yeah, I don't have a great solution to that. That is, that is probably the only problem that really exists of a sort of major sort. China, of course, wants to reincorporate 
Taiwan back into its territory. Uh, the best situation for that would just simply wait uh, until until things simmer down. But things have simmered up, particularly because of their uh, incursions and their adventures in in Hong Kong in the last couple of years, uh, which doesn't sell well, obviously, in Taiwan. Um, in in general, I think it's probably not going to lead to war. Um, the the Chinese talk about it from time to time, but I think they're not going to push it that far. That would that would not be an international war if it did take place. I think the United States mostly would stay out. It's, we're now in the time of the Iraq syndrome, uh, in which there's very little um, support in the United States for getting into other uh, organized conflicts. Uh, I think what would happen would be that if they did take over Taiwan, which would not be easy, uh, the, there's only a, a handful of places where you can actually land, and these are pretty uh, uh, with an amphibious landing in, in Taiwan, and the, and the Taiwanese know that and have them pretty heavily fortified, uh, and but would be basically harassment even if they did take over. Uh, the the Chinese would have a huge supply line issue uh, from the mainland out to Taiwan. And shipping could be harassed in various ways to be below the issue of warfare. But I think my best guess is that my major point will hold on that and that this issue will be worked out in the long term, uh, it, particularly if the Taiwanese don't start talking about uh, really a major secession uh, the way the, uh, the, the Hong Kongers somewhat did and then caused the Chinese to come in. So, but I, I don't have a solution to that problem. I think it probably is not a problem. And in terms of your issue about the Cold War coming back, I think we're, we are in a new Cold War. People are getting exercised over threats that don't exist. Um, the idea of Chinese hegemony as being some sort of threat to the United States. The idea that somebody might interfere with our elections electronically, that that's somehow a diabolical issue. Um, and uh, that, uh, the, or that the Soviet Union or Russia has designs on taking over Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. I think none of those things are basically true. Um, or that North Korea is about to start something. North Korea is probably trying to enter the real world rather than to leave it. So I think uh, my, the subtitle of the book talks about complacency. And I think in most cases, not necessarily Taiwan, but in most cases, the policy of complacency is probably the best justified. Uh, in general, I'm against the idea because there's a problem, you have to do something about it. It's not clear that poking at Taiwan, it's poking at China, not going into their Olympics and things like that, is going to actually uh, uh, improve that. And before you do stuff, you try to demonstrate why that basically is a good idea. Economic sanctions, for example, uh, have been used repeatedly to try to change policy, and they failed almost entirely i mean the economic sanctions against cuba has been going on for 60 years no change of policy in that island and that's that's uh, the so but the economic sanctions give the impression that you're actually doing something but uh and you are doing something you're making you're inflicting pain but that's not the point the point is the pain is supposed to cause them to change their policy and it doesn't work so uh, uh, however politically appealing Sanctions may be, they're not a very good unit. They're very, not a very good uh, form of, uh, of uh, international uh, weaponry or discourse. Right. And, and it seems to me that, you know, with regards to, with regards to North Korea, it's, it's always puzzling to me that you hear uh, policy people, you know, wondering out loud why it is that, that North Korea um, is so hell-bent on, on getting a nuclear weapon. Does it mean that they want to, uh, you know, that they have offensive plans? First of all, they wouldn't need a nuclear weapon for that because they could shell Seoul back to the Stone Age within about half an hour. So, they, so that already is, is kind of a, a nuclear option for them. But with, with regard to Korea, there's a sentence in the book, which I think neat, neatly captures this, this point you're making, where, where you write that, quote, there is no need to take risks or act impetuously to speed up historical processes. What is most required is judicious, watchful patience. It seems to me that that kind of captures more generally the point you're making, right? That time is on our side. We don't really need, we don't need to freak out. Things will basically basically resolve themselves. Well, that's what happened with the Cold War. Eventually it evaporated and it was mostly because of what the Soviet Union was doing to itself. And there, as I indicated, there was never any real danger of, of uh, international war in that area. 
Uh, in the case of North Korea, in the book, and I've also done a paper at Cato more recently uh, looking at the North Korean policy, the reason they have nukes is extremely obvious. Uh, George H.W. Bush, after 9-11, uh, four days afterwards, gave a speech at the National Cathedral. Uh, he came in promising a humble foreign policy, but he certainly reversed himself then because he said it should be our goal now to uh, punish these attacks and to rid the world of evil. Wow. You know, God couldn't even do that. He tried that with the flood and it didn't work. You know, after, after the flood is over, the, the, you know, Noah gets out of the ark, gets drunk a lot, and his, his, his uh, sons laugh at him, and we're on the slippery slope back to evil, i.e. Las Vegas. Um, so, uh, and then, then a few months later, the question is, evil is a little bit too, you know, where is that? That's everywhere, right? Like Las Vegas. Uh, and he said, right. no, the of evil is in the first country he mentioned was North Korea, Iraq, and Iran. Well, if you're North Korea, you're pretty unstable, you're pretty insecure. And now the president of the United States says he wants to rid the world of what he sees to be evil, which is the North Korean regime. At that point, they withdrew from the, na the national, the uh, nuclear proliferation treaty and started building nuclear weapons successfully. And they've tried to get some sort of minimal capacity not to hit South Korea, because as you mentioned, if they want to hit South Korea with artillery, they can do incredible amount of damage in, in, uh, in, a, in a blink of an eye, uh, but to hit the United States, who at least with a minimal nuclear capacity, they seem to have got that problem. Uh, it seems to me, and I can't be sure about this, but uh, uh, Kim Jong-un is a new character. Uh, he has said when he came in that he wanted to do two things. One is he wanted to secure the, the country from nuclear from, a, from an attack, particularly by the United States. And he claims that he has done that now because he's got nuclear weapons and the capacity to deliver at least some to potentially American territory. The other thing he wanted to do was to econ reform economically, following the lead perhaps of Vietnam or of China or perhaps even of Singapore. Um, and he's actually done some economic reform. It's been sort of halting and not all that crystal clear what it is. But uh, and the pandemic has gotten in the way of, of, of course, of a lot of things. But he seems to be sincere about this second, uh, the second uh, point. And it seems to me that what we should be doing is trying to look at that really hard. A lot of South Koreans, including President Moon, want to do that. Let's talk to North Korea. Maybe we got some ideas. The Chinese would also like this them to go in that direction. Maybe it won't work. Maybe he's not really sincere, or maybe he'll be undercut by other people or whatever. But he has said it. He has made some honest efforts at economic reform. And he, we should be engaging him, not punishing him with sanctions, but engaging him to see if he can move along, become like Vietnam. He used to be a big enemy, right? Now it's our buddy. Um, or like China, or if he can do it, like Singapore, or like South Korea. Um, he started that. Uh, the, he's not going to leave office. The, the vicious Communist Party is going to remain in control. The contemptible regime is going to be there. But there does seem to be an opening which could be explored, and I think it should be explored, but partly because we're so concerned about these ridiculous nuclear weapons he has. They're almost more ridiculous than the ones the United States has. Uh, we're not actually going into that area, in that arena, and I seem, it seems to me we should be doing that. Yes, that, that's very interesting, and, and it certainly seems to be South Korea's policy to to try and um, take take a different path than the one that's that that's been taken so far. So we're we're rapidly approaching the end here. Maybe just one last one last question. Towards the end of the end of the book, you you point out that your perspective is not an isolationist one. Could you maybe talk talk a little bit a little bit about that? What do you mean by that? And and your point about the fact that reducing military the military posture would be a gamble but it's it's one worth taking and if i can just play devil's advocate uh for one second here to what extent does that rely on the assumption that if necessary the u.s would be able to rebuild its military posture its military capacities fairly quickly in the event in the event of a real crisis yeah, the, the, the argument is, is definitely not pacifistic, um, and it's not uh, uh, isolationist. I'm very much in favor of engaging the world, uh, I mean, given the size of the economy and everything else. 
including Hollywood extension. It's a little bit hard to see how the United States can withdraw from the rest of the world. So dealing economically, dealing in international organizations and being a good player on the stage is perfectly sensible. Um, so I, I think that's the case. I, I also argue that we massively over, overspent on nuclear weapons and, and on the military in general. But the United States is now spending over a trillion dollars over time in simply modernizing the nuclear capacity it has. Really bizarre. I mean, you know, uh, who are we trying to deter this time with our nuclear weapons? It, it, it wasn't necessary last time and it isn't uh, this time. Uh, so I, I think we basically should substantially uh, reduce our military force. But I do think I do have a se section. It's pretty brief, I must say, about hedging against the fact that things could go bad. Um, I would suggest keeping some nuclear weapons in the wildly unlikely situation that hit another Hitler evolved someplace. I would in a certain amount of, uh, of uh, intervention uh, capacity or policing capacity. And also maintaining an ability uh, to uh, rebuild should that somehow become necessary. I don't think it's likely to become necessary, uh, but it seems to me we should hedge against the fact that, that I might be wrong. Um, and if something does start to happen, as happened uh, before World War II, the United States could uh, re start rebuilding and, and, and come back uh, to deal with a threat that might emerge. Um, I'm basically pretty sanguine about that happening. Uh, but it would be wise to keep a few marbles uh, in the right place to, to deal with that, that uh, unlikely um, possibility. Okay, well, unfortunately, our time is up. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'd like to thank my guest, Professor Mueller, for a fascinating discussion. Thank you. Again, the book is The Stupidity of War, American Foreign Policy and the Case for Complacency. It's out now with Cambridge University Press. Professor Miller, thank you very much, and good luck with the book. Thanks very much. I enjoyed the conversation very much. Good luck. Thanks for tuning into David's Politics Show. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Until next time, so long.